When disaster strikes, chaos often results. However, when the Minneapolis bridge collapsed, emergency medical services turned chaos into smooth operations. What led to this well-executed emergency rescue? You are listening to a special report on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And my guests are Dr. Paul Satterley, Emergency Physician at North Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Pat Lilja, Medical Director, Emergency and Trauma, also at North Memorial Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dr. Satterley and Lilja are discussing the importance of planning and coordination during a disaster. Dr. Satterley and Lilja, welcome to Reach MD. As physicians and EMS professionals, how do you prepare for large disasters like the bridge collapse? Uh, this is Dr. Lilja. I think the main thing is to put a plan into effect. And fortunately, here in Minneapolis and the surrounding area, we've been uh, looking at doing that for a number of years. In fact, over 30 years ago, the start of our EMS system occurred when we recognized that we were totally unprepared to take care of an incident that we thought might occur at the airport. Fortunately, nothing came of this airplane that was in trouble, but we actually at that time got a number of hospitals and ambulance services together and set up the first EMS console for the region, primarily to look at uh, dealing with large-scale disasters. And what is the West Metro Medic Control Physicians Group? The West Metro Medic Control Physicians Group is a, well, we have two. We have a group of the ambulance medical directors from each service. And then we actually have five physicians, Dr. Ho and Dr. Hick at Hennepin County Medical Center, Dr. Satterley, Dr. Contarado, and myself here at North Memorial, who uh, take turns being available to respond to disasters that occur in the community. And how do the five of you work together? Well, hopefully we work very well together. One of us is always on, on primary call to respond, and the others are on backup. And we have uh, regular meetings to discuss uh, protocols and procedures, and not only that, participate in uh, community exercises together. In what ways do you work with other physicians and hospitals during these large-scale disasters? I think the main thing we do is we provide an on-scene physician perspective, primarily related to the types of casualties, number of casualties, and what resources will be required at the community hospitals. So all of us uh, being full-time emergency physicians at hospitals, first of all, we're familiar with our colleagues. We're both at the two major trauma centers in Minneapolis. And secondly, we participate at, as I said, the Hennepin County EMS Council, which actually covers an area bigger than Hennepin County. It's really kind of a, a four-county area where we meet on a regular basis with the nurses, administrators, and physicians from other hospitals so they understand what the role of the EMS system will be and we understand what the role of the hospitals are. Do the training drills and mock exercises that you prepare for, did they help you in this particular disaster? This is Dr. Satterley. You know, they really do. It's not as much that you can prepare for the individual types of injuries, but a couple things come out of it. When you go to these drills and disasters, you meet all the different people from the area. There's there's probably four or five ambulance services that provide care within our metro area. And, and to get into these mock drills, you start to recognize the supervisors for those services. You already know the medical directors. You recognize and, and interact with some of the paramedics. And then when something real happens and you get out to the scene, or, you know, say one of us is the West Metro medical physician shows up at the scene, people know who we are. We know who they are. We kind of understand everybody's role already. And it just makes it really seamless and we can start to act as one group and there's no territorial type act or actions. So, you know, those type of drills and establishing those relationships are incredibly important. And were either one of you at the scene that night? Neither of us were there, unfortunately, that night. Both of us 
feel like we missed a little bit on the boat given the experience. And Dr. Lilja was out of town, and I was working in the emergency department. So yeah, I, that is Dr. Lilja. I actually was uh, giving a giving a lecture to ambulance personnel at a small community in uh, rural Minnesota, about 150 miles from town. And when my pager went off, I I took off for the cities, and by the time I I got back here. Uh, they told me on the radio that all the patients had left the scene, everything was under control, and, and my services weren't needed. <laughs> How long a time was that from when you got the text message till the time you arrived? Two hours. And with all that disaster, how amazing it is that all that could take place in two hours right after rush hour. Dr. Satterley actually was working in the emergency department that night. Well, he could talk a little bit about that, but he was uh, was on the end of receiving some of the patients. Yeah, Dr. Satterley, tell us what it was like to be in the ER that night. It was interesting because what happened was, is being one of the West Metro physicians, my pager, I got a page from MRCC asking if I can go to the bridge. And at that point, the media didn't know what had happened, and I didn't even understand to the extent of what they were talking about. You know, we go to a lot of different things, house fires and SWAT standoffs, where the, where really nothing ever happens. And so I didn't really understand the scope of this. And then eventually the media caught on to it, and we started watching it on TV. And you realize that it was the most significant bridge in downtown Minneapolis, you know, as far as traffic volume. And it was right during rush hour. So I think we all started to kind of speculate as to what we were going to start seeing as patients. It was very difficult initially to stay focused on the patients you were dealing with in the emergency department because we were all trying to figure out what was going to happen over the next hour or two and what that meant to our department. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and today I'm speaking with Minneapolis emergency response physicians, Dr. Paul Satterley and Dr. Pat Lilja. So how many other patients did you have in the ER when this disaster occurred? We have 40 rooms that we use in our emergency department. They were all full, and I think we had 10 or 12 people in triage waiting to be seen as well. That's kind of where we are at in the setting when, or the context of when this happened. So you were full up and in the midst of a busy evening at the ER, and then the bridge collapsed. So what did you do within the emergency room to get ready for the potential onslaught of patients? The first thing that we did is as a physician, and thankfully the hospital administration understands this and the nursing staff, is you really need to make some, some expedited decisions or some quick decisions and expedite people getting out of the emergency department up to the hospital if they're going to be admitted or alternative destinations. You know, and sometimes you may spend a little more time working somebody up on a non-emergent situation. You might just say, listen, right now we're going to discharge you and you can go home. And we really just tried to make room for anybody else that was going to come in from the bridge. How many patients did you treat and what kind of injuries did you see that night? So this is Dr. Satterley. The hospital saw 10 patients. I think I only took care of one that night. The person that I saw was the most significantly injured that, I, that we saw. She had four vertebral fractures, and primarily just because she was strapped into her seat with her seatbelt, and her car fell vertically at probably 50 feet and just put a complete axial load onto her spinal column and collapsed four of her vertebrae. Do you know what her condition is today? Yeah, she's she's fine. She's great. She had she really presented looking very, very sick just because of how much pain she was in, and she was tremendously emotionally distraught, and it made it really difficult to figure out what her true injuries were. Uh, by the end of the night, we realized that she didn't have any internal, uh, any abdominal injuries, any head injury. It was all just bony vertebral column injury, and no spi- no actual spinal cord injury. She went home, I think, six days later in a brace. She didn't have surgery. She was fine. And were you the primary emergency room 
for collection of patients? We were not. How many patients were treated overall from the bridge collapse, do you know? I think the total number we finally arrayed for the system was something like 120. What happened was, as is often the case, that some people had more minor injuries where they could walk away and then, you know, an hour or two later figured out that they were hurt and should be seen. So we actually had some patients showing up at the emergency departments 20 or 30 miles away from the bridge. And uh, this is true, uh, actually, even when the world, we had that unfortunate tragedy at the World Trade Center that some people uh, went long distances to get medical care. Tell us what happened at the hospital, the sort of moment that you knew there was a big disaster. What about staffing, preparing other areas of the hospital? What kinds of things happened? What we did is we did not activate our emergency disaster plan in that we didn't call, do the phone tree and call people in and make them on, a, on alert because we realized we were not going to be the primary hospital for a lot of these patients just because of proximity. So we waited to kind of hear, but at the same time, we started to get things ready by opening up, or I should say, maneuvering people out of intensive care units that could have been transferred out. Maybe the next morning we did it earlier that night. We made sure that people were aware of the, the disaster. One of our physicians that had just left the emergency department came back and helped us Again, we talked about we had 10 people in triage and a full ER, so we kind of helped us manage some of those patients and and make plans for them just so that we could have the room and the capacity to help with this. I know that the trauma surgeons contacted their two secondary call trauma surgeons, and they were available. A number of different emergency department physicians called in to say that they were available, and I think everybody recognized there was the potential for problems. We just didn't activate it and bring everybody in as of yet at the moment. We never actually did. What kind of direct communication did you have with responders in the field? Most of our communication came only when they were transporting people to our hospital. And I think that's important because, you know, you want to know what's going on down there, but they really have a job to do. And all we can really do is just deal with the people that they bring to us. So we stay out of communication with the scene until we know someone's coming to us and we just want to know what they're bringing and when. Was everyone in the emergency room watching TV and seeing what was going on at the scene? Absolutely. And was that at all helpful in doing what you do in the ER? I think it makes everybody understand the importance and it makes them realize that that this is serious and we need to do our job serious and it's time to get down to business and be fast. But it also... I think it caused some anxiety. We started to speculate. You know, some of the initial numbers coming out were tremendous. They thought, gosh, there's going to be hundreds of people killed or you know, tens of people killed. And I think that makes it adds to a little bit of anxiety until you get the real numbers. And our, one of the more senior physicians made the comment during the whole thing, try not to get too far ahead of yourself in speculating what's going to happen here. Let's just wait until we get handed what we need to deal with, and we'll deal with it. So what did you learn from this particular incident that's going to be useful in the future? Dr. Lilja, I think, first of all, we learned that a lot of our planning efforts in the past have really helped off in preparing us. Uh, I think uh, as with any incident or anything in medicine, we are going to learn from this. We've had debriefings. We're going to have more about things that we could do better. But I think the other real thing is that uh, it really just focuses on the fact that we've got to continue our planning efforts. We've got to continue having joint drills, and together the uh, members of the various uh, ambulance services in the community, the hospitals, we have to continue focusing on this joint effort that we've had over the last 30 years of establishing good communications between us. So when something happens, we're all on the same page and hopefully uh, can manage things relatively well, as I think we did this incident. Was anybody that was on the hospital staff involved as a a driver or pedestrian during the bridge collapse? As far as I know, nobody at North Memorial was directly involved. We had some people that had gone over it shortly before, but as far as I'm aware, I have not heard anybody on our staff that was on the bridge at the time it collapsed.
And anyone that you treated that wasn't a driver on the bridge, any emergency response personnel or anybody like that? No, actually, we were fortunate. I think one of the things we always talk about with emergency response is uh, scene safety and making sure that we keep our personnel safe. And uh, as far as I'm aware, we did not have any emergency responders that, in terms of the ambulance personnel, I know that maybe Dr. Contarado, I believe one firefighter was some, something very minor and I think you're going to talk with him later, and maybe he can comment on that. When a disaster incident management plan is in place, physicians can do their job of saving lives. Nothing exemplifies this more than the success of the emergency response when the entire span of the Interstate 35W bridge collapsed in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Paul Satterley and Dr. Pat Lilja from North Memorial Hospital in Minneapolis for helping us understand the importance of executing the plan. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to a special report on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.